Thanks for checking out this episode of Business Black Belts. I really appreciate you listening and hope you get some great insights out of today's leader. Let's dive into the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Business Black Belts. I'm thrilled to have Ryan Kick from McHugh on the show today. Thank you, Ryan, for coming on. Thanks for having me, Miles. Glad to be here. Uh, so really excited to dig in on this. You're obviously a sales leader, a sales speaker. You do some coaching and mentoring, a big brand on, on social media. And we've obviously gotten to know each other a little bit more the last couple months. But I like to start uh, these off really slow for anyone who doesn't know you to just get you warmed up on answering my questions. Uh, how would you describe yourself uh, either personally or professionally? I like to start personally. I, I think it's a shame we often start everything about who we are just by what we do. But uh, so I'm, I'm a father of two beautiful young girls. Uh, my wife and my family, we live in Southern California. I'm from New York originally and Somewhere along the way, I realized you don't have to dig your car out uh, from snow every year just because that's where you were born. So I, I chose to pick up and go where I don't have to deal with that anymore and uh, haven't looked back since. Uh, professionally, I actually thought I would start off by being a writer. I actually moved to California also partly to, to write screenplays and, and get into that business. I was the head writer for a TV show that never aired. Uh, it was an interesting experience. Realized it, it, there's no glamour on the writing side, and, and perhaps you know not enough talent either for, for some of us. Uh, but it was an interesting exercise. Uh, what I loved along the way always was, was people. Uh, I had put myself partially through college, paying for it by working actually in car dealerships. I started in the parts department, then went to service, and eventually went to sales. So I was a car salesman, um, and and you know so much of the I guess uh, you know history of that is negative. And, and for me, it, it was it was not right. It, it, that is the a real pure sales, highly competitive, but really comes down to what you learn and reaffirm later in life, you know, relationship based, which is when I turned the corner in that business and realized it wasn't about the transaction or the dollars, but just, you know, what does that person or family need, etc. Uh, you know, it, it was an interesting experience because there's a lot of joy in buying your car. It's the second biggest purchase of, of your life often. So, you know, you realize it is very stressful. It, it has been put in a negative light, but when it's done right, it, it's a really great, there's a lot of happiness when you're, when you're buying a new car or, or used car, whatever it might be, but the, the new car for you. So, um, that was in my background always. And then even though I went into those other fields that, that relationship building, helping people solve a problem, get to, you know, their why as Simon Sinek says, was always there. Um, and then I, I got into education. Actually, I ended up being a SAT tutor for a small boutique firm, just uh, pay some bills. That was also just super rewarding. You know, you're sitting with these students that are just so capable, but so fearful of the, you know, this one test determining their future. And you'd sit at their kitchen table and you'd help them really kind of find their path. And uh, I loved it, but I also thought the company I was working for could be doing it bigger and better. So uh, I positioned uh, a proposal to the then owner and founder, and he was excited about me taking it up to Northern California. So we opened a new branch and I ran that business for him and later took uh, over the day-to-day -day operations for that business when the gentleman uh, whose name was Jason Reno passed away. Uh, he, he was a young man, had a beautiful family, um, and, and it was very difficult circumstances for him, for the family. For me, so we took that over. Uh, I ran that for a number of years before helping sell it to the Princeton Review, which is a large SAT you know tutoring company. I became a, a regional vice president for them, 
later grew into overseeing the North American marketplace from from sales and, and kind of a GM type role. Um, and, and so that was a fascinating climb just in terms of, you know, more and more direct reports, fewer and fewer peer level, uh, realizing that, you know, you, you love spending the time with the group that's kind of on the ground, if you will, but your responsibilities take you more and more to the people who are, you know, five steps away from the students and figuring out how to find that joy in that. And, and I did, which was through, you know, for us, I always felt like more growth was more bettered futures for students. It was super satisfying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was, that was a great experience. Um, so I, I share all that because sales, marketing, a lot of those things I, I got into, you know, really enjoyed and resonated. But one also through through thread for me has always been working for companies that, you know, do good. So I try and always focus on, you know, doing well by doing good. So, I was, you know, I want me and my family to have the success we need for what we want. But I want to do it knowing it's because, man, our growth year meant a lot of people are better off, right? So at Princeton Review and, and before that, Eureka Review is the name of the smaller company. You know, it was more kids getting into the college they wanted to go to. Uh, and now at McHugh Corporation, we're a safety company. We focus on uh, safety both in where, where you shop. So a lot of um, supermarkets and things like that. We're protecting the parking lots and the stores. My division, we oversee uh, warehouses, distribution centers. And for us, we feel like, wow, great growth year means more people were safe, right? Less people were, were hit by a forklift or you know whatever other, you know, these day-to-day tragedies that happen. So, so there's a lot of satisfaction there. So that, that's been, for me, really important is sales, marketing, growth, that exciting stuff, growing salespeople, but also feeling like that growth led to good as well. So long-winded about me. I guess I do like talking about myself. So <laughs> No, it's, it's great. Now, now I'm curious. So the first question that comes to mind is, when we think about sort of the principles of selling, you've sold everything from cars, which are, you know, maybe $20,000, to SAT prep, mm-hmm. which is in the hundreds of dollars, to you know, million dollar mm-hmm. solutions for like a large warehouse. When people say, you know, sales is all the same, how much is that true and how much would you disagree? So sales is the same in that you're always solving a problem. When done right, right? You're solving a problem, you're figuring out the, the why. So, you know, again, uh, barring Simon's uh, it, you know example. And so a great example of that for me is actually on uh, the car sales. When I first got into that, again, I was doing it just to have a job and I was, you know, trying to get to, you know, okay, you want to pay 20,000, I want you to pay 21,000 and we'll battle it out and figure it out. And I still remember to this day, so I had an interaction with a gentleman who came in. We, I worked at a, at a Chevy Buick dealership at the time. So I came in and he was thinking about buying a Corvette. And this is in the late 90s. He's thinking about buying a Corvette. But he also owned at the time um, an Audi, an all-wheel drive Audi. And we're going talking about the, you know, what do you like about this? What do you like about that? And what he said at one point, he said, I thought about the Corvette last time, but I went with the Audi because it's just, it's so much more advanced technologically, you know, all-wheel drive. You just, you, you hit the gas and you go, right? And I said, yeah, I mean, it's an amazing car. I said, I, I think, the, and I stumbled into this, admittedly. But in conversation, eventually I said, but... You know, it's funny you say that. Nothing about me as a kid when I fell in love with cars had to do with a car that just went, right? Which is amazing. It had to do with a car that, you know, like 
you know, it, roaring engine, smoke billowing out of like the back as the tires spin and you, you know, you leave dramatically, right? Like that's that emotion. And, I, you know, because he was, he was a gentleman who was a fan of cars. I was like, I have a feeling the car you fell in love with was, did far more of the, of the emotive stuff, right? Like it, it killed a bunch of mosquitoes on its way out and tire smoke. It didn't just go. And, and he laughed and he's like a hundred, yeah, a hundred percent, you know? So, and and so then I, I said some version of the difference between the car you have, which is amazing, and the Corvette is your car is going to take off and disappear fast. Amazing. The Corvette's going to go and disappear, but everyone's going to know you were there because of the tire marks you left behind. And it was for him like, yes, that that is true. Like, I want that. And I realized, again, that's where it was about an emotional side of it. So that has to happen regardless. It doesn't matter the amount you're selling for, right? And for a family, it could be about the, the, the reinforced safety that's in the side door for an impact, right? And that's what's going to matter. Uh, and for protecting a uh, large-scale facility, it be, could be because you know, they've got 150 people walking by this high-consequence area where you know, things could be toppling onto them or a fork truck could be hitting them. So you, you do have to get there regardless. And then the, the difference is, of course, <laughs> is, is probably just the time of it, right? That's what I find f usually fluxes. So a car purchase, you have a moment in time, you need it, you know, I need it within the next two months. A facility, I could be talking to somebody about that for the next year and a half before they finally make their decision, whether it's with McHugh or someone else. But so I would say it's that relationship building. So I'm trying to build rapport in the first 10 minutes on a car sales floor. I'm trying to build rapport in the first 10 minutes. Sure. When I'm talking to somebody about protecting a facility, but I'm likely going to have a year long or nine month or six month relationship with this person. So that dynamic is very different. And, and, and you have to learn how to use that as, as a positive. Uh, you don't want people to get sick of you. You don't want them to hear the same story from you over and over again. The things that work great when you're only selling to somebody in one hour can get tiresome if you're selling to them for nine months, right? So that's where I see the difference is, is figuring out how to sell over time is probably a big difference in that example you gave. And I'm curious for you, as you became a leader, or you went from being you know, a college student selling cars to ultimately leading mm -hmm. big teams to now leading a team, is it one of the hardest things to teach someone to go from selling the what to selling the why it feels like that's an intuitive skill more than like a training course it yeah it's interesting so i think it is intuitive uh i think there's some folks that just you know naturally get there and again i stumbled into it most people would probably find it faster than me it wasn't uh, i'm giving myself credit for that but to your point it didn't come from a training and i had been through sales trainings general motors has a great sales training it didn't really hit on the things that I ended up finding worked best for me. Um, so, it, but there, the why goes both ways. So there's the why of the customer. There's also the why of the salesperson. And if the why of the salesperson is limited solely to the size of the commission check, they struggle to find the why for the customer. But if they can find their why and it's about, you know, and it could still come back where money is is what you need, but it's about, you know, safety and security in retirement, or it's about, you know, the, the, the you know, braces for my, my son or daughter, whatever it might be. They realize that it's about an improvement in their lives. 
And so you can help them find that that's what you're trying to do for the customer too. It's improving their lives. It might be their professional life so their boss doesn't yell at them as much. It might be to keep someone safe. But that's usually where I find I can get good connective tissue. When I'm working with a salesperson that the only thing they care about is, no, I want my, my check to be 5% higher and I'll fight tooth and nail to make that happen on this deal. That's where I find that they sell more feature benefit and they struggle a little bit more with the why. Uh, so you know, that comes back also to the interview process. So the, you know, one thing that I think I've, I've learned along the way is, is to spend more time on the interview process to try and get to the right team as opposed to get through the interview process to fill an opening. Whereas that's what I used to do. I used to just go for, like, we got an opening. Let's we ram a ton of people through the interview funnel. Who is the best? This guy or this girl? Great, let's hire him. And now I realize I could go through an interview and say, there was a best, but that person's still not right. So we're going to go find more candidates again. And that has been a, a big shift for me that made a difference in moving from salesperson to you know sales leader and, and other roles. Um, and then the other thing I find in that growth that I just encourage folks to do uh, is ask for the jobs you want even before you're ready. Mm -hmm. I'd argue most successful people probably weren't truly ready for the jobs they got along the way. What made them successful is that they get it and figure it out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, get out there, say it, admit it. Hey, you know, I may not have that background you're looking for, but I'm going to do the job well regardless, right? And here's how I'm going to do that. So, uh, advocate for yourself. You know, don't don't stop selling on your own behalf. Uh, so it's not just about the product you sell. It's about selling yourself, selling your vision, and, and erring on the side of take on a little more than you're ready for, and you'll you know you'll you'll probably figure it out. <laughs> and was that the progression for you in the SAT business? Right. Imagine you go from you know, working in it to now you're basically an entrepreneur. To suddenly right, you're on right. this roller coaster of your bot. Now you have all these bureaucratic expectations, and it sounds like you really thrive to quickly, you know, I guess adapt yourself to rise in a big company. Or maybe you can speak to that in that same mindset. Yeah, yeah. So I think that did come back to one the mindset of of me feeling like absolutely I can I can handle this, and absolutely I can move from you know company with six full time employees and you know eighty tutors to running a division with, you know, 70 full-time direct, you know, report almost, you know, through a, through a, a few intermediaries and a thousand tutors, because why wouldn't I be able to figure that out? You know, and so you have to start with that. And, and again, you can at times be naive and, and but you, you do get there. Uh, ask for help, raise your hand and ask for help. So that's the other thing I, I try to be uh, brave enough to do which is to say you're ready, but also say, but I'm going to need time with that person this week, right? I'm going to go out and visit. Can I come shadow you for a little while? And of course, you probably have to run into a little bit of luck that you have peers that want to do that for you. And I did. I had two, two wonderful peers. Um, I actually share their names in case they ever stumble upon this. Uh, Joy Westorp and Gina Bennett, that they, they took that time to say, hey, we want you to be successful as well. Uh, and, and sometimes you're not that fortunate to have peer groups like that. So, so that, that was part of it. The other is, and again, I think this comes back to the why you're in it. The big thing for me was I wanted to make bigger change, like change at a, at a broader scale. I knew that with the big company, we could do more good for more people. 
Now it comes with other headaches, right? More approvals, more questions, you know, all the things that, you know, sometimes corporate America is, is you know, criticized for. Uh, but I find it didn't stifle entrepreneurism in any way. It just demanded the entrepreneur be committed to selling internally as much as they used to be committed to selling externally. So whereas an, a, a small company, I was always out trying to sell to a potential customer school, whoever it might be. That was my path. That's where I had to leverage my skills. Once I wrap my head around a principal review, I'm doing the same thing, only now I have to sell to the, you know, the C-suite and the you know, SVPs. But if I do that effectively, I will get the same big results change that I need. I shouldn't be frustrated by that. It's just selling to a different audience and selling internally as much or more than externally. Some people don't love that. I actually realized, well, this is the same. I've got somebody who wants to say no to me. They clearly don't know everything they need to know yet. So let me figure that out. Let me let me help solve that for them. So. And how much of your foray into TV screenwriting gave you the confidence to fail? Like it feels like you just do not fear failure at all. I don't. I don't. Uh, well, I, I mean, I guess it's probably a little too flippant to say I don't, right? I mean, there, there's there's a type of failure that obviously would be problematic. But I I, I come to a, uh, they're always printing more money, right? They're, so there's more out there for us. There's always going to be another job. So I always think about it, you know, even in the worst case scenario, fortunately, these are not finite resources. We have to think of them as, as them being finite resources. If I lost this job, what will I do? You know, it's like, well, well, I'll go try and get one of the other million jobs that are out there that someone's hiring for, right? So, uh, you know, if I if I if I lose this paycheck, what will I do? Oh, this company's cutting paychecks every week. I'll go, you know. So, I it's I guess they call that the abundance mentality. Like you just think, hey, there's more out there, so it doesn't have to be this one. Which also gives me the the freedom to give our customers the ability to say no, right? Which is another thing I really focus on is to be able to say, hey. If this is not, not the right time, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like this isn't the right time. Just let me know. There's no problem. You know, and, and when you give people the freedom to say no. So on the screenwriting bit, yeah, the, the answer is no all the time. And the frustrating thing there is you can often think, but it's not based on any real, uh, you know, objective measure. You know, like a, a, as a salesperson, you know, am I growing? Yes. Okay, then I'm successful. You can feel like as a writer in any artistic you know, a pursuit, well, I made something that's great and it's even better than that other thing. Why did that get made and this didn't? You know, How do I win if there's no real rule of engagement? You know, and, and so that allows you to go in a little bit about a conversation you and I had once before, Miles, which is like, there is an element of it that's out of your control. You can choose to let that frustrate you or you could let that be freeing. Mm -hmm. And I choose to let it be freeing, which is like they didn't buy my screenplay. I'm not going to say that's because I'm horrible and incapable. I'm going to say it wasn't the right one for them at this time. Who knows what? So be it. I did what I was proud. Now I feel the same way in sales. Hey, I think I did it. You know, I still do a postmortem, if you will. What could I have done better? But I'm going to go, hey, what wasn't the right thing for them at this time? It's not a judgment on me and my, you know, person or my you know my qualities so okay move on to the next one and so i think probably that's where screenwriting helped quite a bit is you just realize do the best you can it will be good enough for most there'll be times it's not and that's okay too mm -hmm. and it's, it reminds me of kind of what tony robbins talks about with like we we have to choose in our mind what things mean 
So for mm-hmm. you, rejection doesn't mean it's a problem with you. It means they're not, it's really a problem with them. They're not ready. They didn't understand. They, and it, it's helpful yeah. to just frame failure that way because if it's about me, it's permanent. Yeah. Right. And, and I, I, you know, I would take it a step further. So it's not about the people necessarily. So it's not about me. It's not necessarily about them. It's about the circumstances, whatever those circumstances, you know, the timing wasn't right. And and I don't want to get to the point where I excuse a way where I could do better. So I encourage anyone who you know listens, you do think back, you, go, you know what? I still remember when I you know was late on that deadline or I didn't answer that question in the RFP or, you know, so we should always get better. There are times it's you. And what I mean by that, it's the actions you took that you could have done better. But it's not you, the person. It's you, the process, right? Or you as you performed the process. And it's the same for them. So that's what I, I would say is freeing is you take the, the people side out and just, you know, what were the activities I could have done differently? And realizing when you did do those activities, it's okay to pat yourself on the back for what the world would consider a failure. Just like if the world saw a success that you got lucky, then you should be hard on yourself. Yeah. 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 Exactly right. Yeah. There's, there's times wins have happened in spite of me <laughs> and I have to acknowledge that. And there are times I've, you know, had to close, lost a deal where I go, I, I don't I don't think I could have done anything differently or better. I think that just didn't work out. And I've noticed too, it's even levels of accountability because in the might as a leader, it becomes there's a micro error that is out of your control, but in the macro, you can control who you hire, how you build a process, et cetera. So it's almost exactly yes, confusing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it can be, and I think it's choosing when after that happens, like when when it doesn't work out, the answer is no. How much? You know, when is it time to change the process? versus when it's time to say that's okay you know again you're not going to win them all and that can be tough and i I don't know that i've figured that out exactly right i'm sure sometimes i've just dismissed something and it turns out there was something i could have fixed and i'm sure there's times i fix something almost for no reason but i think that's what i was trying to come back to what could we have done differently is it something that our process should have caught and we just didn't work the process versus it's not in our process it was a blind spot so we should add it to our process versus finally Nope, that's just, you know, competitor came in and offered 75% off and we're not going to do that. And uh, what are you going to do if that happens, right? So, yeah, it's really interesting. So I'm curious that when you're a sales leader, whether at a large company like Princeton Review or today at McHugh, there is an inordinate amount of pressure, which I have found is actually probably harder than being an entrepreneur, because entrepreneur mm. gets this glorification, yeah. but the odd thing about being a business owner is if it's privately owned, you're not actually getting external pressure. So you do have to make payroll stuff, but in a weird way, a sales leader, mm-hmm. you have all the entrepreneurial responsibility with more pressure. How do you deal with that? It's good. It's a good question. Uh, it's funny. It's There's pressure from failure and pressure from degrees of success, and you'd mentioned, you know, so... I don't know I've ever known pressure quite like a time when running a small company where you do look ahead to payroll in two weeks and go, oh man, I've got to have some things happen to make that payroll. That is, that's it, because that's other people's livelihoods, right? It's not just your livelihood, which is one type of pressure, it's, it's other people's livelihood. So that to me is is usually pressure filled. However, once you get above that, I do think it, it's all internal motivation, right? Do I want to make this much for myself this year or this much for myself this year, right? So do I want the company to have this much market share? And that is different than, yeah, big corporate America that's, you know, always be growing. So I do think about it, and I'm sure you know them, right? I know some successful business owners where they've reached the point where 
hey, the same thing every year at this point is great, right? Like I'll settle into this. I'm, I'm my company, my people, I'm paying good wages. I'm, I'm taking out what I'm happy with. I don't need it to be more because I also have a great quality of life outside. You know, there is no company that stops at the like, hey, gang, we're, we're good. You don't need to grow anymore. Just be the sales leader that keeps us flat. Like that, that will, so you do start getting to like, oh, 30% growth again <laughs> on this number where we just said it's the, we never imagined a world where we'd be this big. And then, you know, we take a deep breath and after New Year's Eve, we come back and say, but now anything less than 30% bigger than this is unacceptable. You know, you just start realizing like, when, do, when does it end? So that is an interesting churn. And I think that's why you see, you know, uh, people leave and, and, you know, big organizations at times is because I think they get to a point of, you know, we've accomplished so much we set out to do. I, I don't know I want to keep moving that target. I'd rather see a new target with a new company and go see what that's like. And I think that's where companies have to choose, you know, again, I know the old adage, if you're not growing, you're dying. But what else can you give as a target to people? When you start saying we've achieved the unachievable, so now go, go do more. Uh, although I will say, I, I worked for an entrepreneur and his favorite quote, and I loved it. Whenever we kicked off a new project, and he he was relentless, you know, far more engine than I ever had. Where you, you'd be asking about a priority, a project, and you know, uh, how fast do you, you know, when should we get it done? Where does it sit on the priority list? And his answer would be, I need it as fast as you can do it. And then accelerate from there. <laughs> yeah, so that's always stuck with me. Yeah, it's, it's funny. There's a lot of personalities. So a, a final question I'd love to ask you, and uh, and feel free to uh, answer it with a, however lengthy of a response, but I'm really fascinated by when people reach this level of success like you have, where not to say it's on autopilot, but like you said, like you know your skills are in demand. You know you've got a lot of value in the market. You've clearly proven you can be a top sales leader. What's that shift to how you want to be remembered and what your legacy is going to be? And if you look at mm -hmm. still with a big chunk of your career left, like having reached this kind of plateau at a, at a relatively early age compared to many people, what is that next chapter and how do you want it to finish if you kind of began with the end in mind? Yeah, uh, it's funny. You did. I you mentioned I, I, I'm maybe young for my success. I there was a time I was the, the youngest person in the room, right? That that's not as much the case anymore. So that is its own thing to kind of adjust to, which is uh, you do want to start thinking more about the you know what what does you know exit look like? What does deceleration look like, if you will? Uh, I would say I've I've landed on it accidentally, which is. Earlier in my career, for all of my attempts to be like wanting everyone to be successful, uh, and I'm sure some listeners are, are familiar with this, you'd have those pangs when someone you used to work with, you know, that, and you're not even working in the same company anymore, but you see on LinkedIn, they got some gig and, oh man, that title's, that's higher than my title. Like, how did they get, like, and they're not in a bad way, but that competitive, how did they get there faster than me? And I used to have that. And now I would say the big shift for me is being seeing folks who I used to work with or worked for me or worked with or I worked for, but you see them reach some level of success themselves, mm -hmm. whether it's internally still at the company you work for or it's externally. And none of that's there anymore. I'm like, man, they good for them. They got that gig. And and so I've found that's where I'm leaning more to. And I think it's probably, you know, the part of the transition from from salesperson to sales manager is how many people could eventually have a similar role to me or, or, you know, higher than 
that I used to work with or, or, or worked for me and, you know, feel like I played a part, right? So those little notes you get once in a while. Hey, I got this gig. I did that thing you recommended during the interview. Thank you so much, right? So I, I found for me, it's not chasing the network gains on LinkedIn. It's like seeing the promotion announcements on LinkedIn, right? It becomes this really kind of satisfying thing, which is, oh, not only did they not flame out with me when I knew that could have happened at one point, they stayed on and they went on to do better things and even better than I ever got to, which is amazing. So um, that's what I'm hoping for on, on a professional legacy is to have a lot of folks get to the roles they wanted uh, internally and externally. That's, it's a great answer. I've noticed in my business, when I focus on taking care of my team and my customers, growth follows. And when you yep. go to some stupid entrepreneur's organization seminar about growing and you try to build for growth and you lose sight of those first two, uh, mm-hmm. you it never works. And it's just like it's so yeah. counterintuitive that the most success I, comes from not trying to get it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's... It's so funny you say that, and and I know you you said we were on our last question. I'm sure we're we're bumming against time, but uh, another gentleman I used to work with, uh, Paul Kanarak, who's you know wickedly smart. He was at Pritzker View, uh, you know, phenomenal leader himself, really motivational, but like you know, incredibly smart, math, Excel files, business plans, could do it all, right? And he did that for those above him, right? The CFO that needed to see your full trajectory and all, you know, you're thinking through all that. But when he turned around and talked to his team about how are they were going to, how we're going to grow, he didn't do 10 slides and five PowerPoints. He said, because it was that principle, he said, we're going to have more students and they're going to be happier than last year. That's the only thing I want you guys to focus on. Find me more students and make sure they're happier than last year. And, and he said, and the PNL is going to go in the right direction. There's just no world where it can't. We focus, and so it was always so funny to me, which is like he'd impress, you know, the the uh, you know the MBAs in the room with the thoughtful plan and everything, but that never went down to his team. He never told them, "Here's our you know 14 you know guiding guiding light principles." He just said, "Let's go get more students and let's make them really happy." And sure enough, we grew you know grew like a weed. So uh, I'm I'm with you. You focus on that. A lot of it takes care of itself. Yeah. Well, that that, that sounds like an anecdote. I definitely uh want to use for LinkedIn because that's a, that's a great reminder for me. So my final question is, I know you are obviously uh, in the industry and you know, probably broadly building products, warehousing. So if anyone wanted to reach out to you uh, for what McHugh does, I know you do some sales speaking and a little bit of you know coaching on the side. So for that, if yeah. someone wanted advice, like what's the best way to reach you? Is LinkedIn an appropriate one? Yeah, I think these days LinkedIn's the best way, whether it's about McHugh, the amazing stuff we do to keep people safe, whether it's you think you might want to chat with me for a few minutes and some of the things I you know, talk about with sales and marketing, no matter what, uh, just reach out, happy to follow up and, and just get to know people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on. I'm excited to uh, keep following your trajectory and uh, I learned a lot today, so I'm sure our audience will as well and just appreciate you being generous with your time. Thank you, Miles. I appreciate it. Thanks for the great questions. Thanks again for listening to today's episode of Business Black Belts. Should you want to see more content on both the show, marketing, and business in general, feel free to check out my LinkedIn. Thanks.